From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE can help you manage your money in different currencies. With WISE, you can send money to your cousin in Australia with ease, travel internationally without having to brave an airport currency exchange desk, and take away the guesswork that goes along with converting currencies. WISE lets you send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate, all without any hidden fees. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E dot com. WISE dot com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, and uh, welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm Zach Beecham. I've been a periodic guest host here at The Weeds, but you may also know me from my stint hosting Worldly, Vox's dearly departed foreign policy talk show. And that's the kind of topic we're going to be returning to today. I have a guest here, who's very exciting, Jonathan Geyer, is one of Vox's reporters covering foreign policy and foreign affairs. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Zach. So we are here because you may remember this. In early August, the Biden administration announced that a drone strike had killed Ayman al-Zawahiri, who is the head of al-Qaeda and was the longtime number two. His role in 9-11 is somewhat contested. Many people say it's smaller than it's widely presumed to be. But he was, he was you know, the group's number two at the time of the attack. His death sparked a lot of conversation. In particular, Jonathan and I published kind of opposed pieces uh, on Vox. I was basically arguing that that we are in a post-war on terror era. And Jonathan is, is arguing that actually the war on terrorism, we can get into why you would say war on terror versus war on terrorism, but he's arguing, you know, actually a lot of the things associated with it are continuing. And we can't just say this is over by any stretch of the imagination. So that's what we're going to talk about today. The rise and fall of the war on terrorism as a paradigm, as a U.S. foreign policy doctrine, as a set of laws and legal structures and domestic law enforcement activities. What was this thing? What is this thing? Is it continuing? And what would it mean for it to end? But I think before we uh, you know, really get into the, the meat of the disagreement between Jonathan and I, I think we need to start by with this sort of conceptual question, right? Like what – was the war on terrorism, even if we can't agree on whether it's ended, right? And I think at the outset, right, you have to start any chronology here with the with the 9-11 attacks, right? That is the beginning of what we understand to be the war on terrorism. Jonathan, how would you understand the concept to have evolved after that pretty bad day? So I've been speaking with a lot of former diplomats this week about Afghanistan since it's been a year since the U.S. withdrawal of troops from there. And I've kind of been asking this conceptual question was, did we need to invade Afghanistan in 2001? And I think that's really the beginning of the war on terrorism, which is there's this totally heinous attack on the United States, you know, biggest attack on American soil in generations. And the response was to go after the nation that was harboring al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. And 
ultimately, this becomes part of a bigger ideological war that the George W. Bush administration pursues. It leads to a really misguided, in my opinion, invasion of Iraq, and ultimately, a whole legal architecture, a drone war architecture, a counterterrorism architecture that ends up expanding to about 85 countries. And data from the Cost of War project at Brown University shows just hundreds and thousands of civilians have died in Iraq and Afghanistan as part of this process. It becomes a whole encompassing strategic or lack of strategic vision for how America comports itself in the world. And I think it's interesting to go back to that moment and say, could this have been a narrow policing action? Could we have gone after al-Qaeda and and dismembered al-Qaeda without you know, extending a two-decade-long war across several continents? And I don't want to engage in counterfactuals. They don't always totally make sense. But to learn the lessons of that period, of, the, of this 20 years of war, I think it is time to start posing some of these questions. And I think your piece, Zach, posed a lot of good points in terms of symbolically, yes, the war on terrorism is over. And I think you rightly argue that it was largely a failure of a paradigm. The question is, you know, what replaces it and to what extent does the war on terrorism ethos kind of endure? Yeah, it's it's useful to tease out, I think, sort of three different ways of understanding the war on terrorism. Right. The first one, right, you're I think you're right that as a physical war, right, a literal kind of war, the invasion of Afghanistan is the is the beginning of the war on terrorism. But it's interesting to note that if you go back and look at what you know, the the rhetoric around the time, Bush referred to there being a war on terrorism in his address given on 9-11, primetime address in the nation, 8.30 p.m. Everyone was watching, I remember. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. And so I went through before we were talking and looked, and there it is near the end of, of his prepared remarks, something about the war on terrorism. I thank the many world leaders who have called to offer their condolences and assistance. America and our friends and allies join with all those who want peace and security in the world. And we stand together to win the war against terrorism. Now, at the time, the concept, it wasn't defined at all. Like, what would it mean to declare war on terrorism? And, and one version is, as you say, this sort of direct invasion of Afghanistan. And, and so you can see it conceptualize the war on terrorism as just literally a war, the United States government using military force to kill people and defeat terrorist organizations around the world to varying degrees of success. You also can conceptualize it, though, as I think the timing of Bush's speech indicated and you also alluded to, right, as an ideological paradigm. Like there's a concept of the war on terrorism because there was no one defined war, right? It wasn't like Congress voted and said like a literal declaration of war. They issued an open-ended authorization for the use of military force that allowed for – you know, various different kinds of, of undefined military techniques to be used against various terrorist groups in various different places, right? And that, that document has since ballooned into a justification for operations in places, uh, you know, as far away from Afghanistan as like Somalia and Libya, right? Like really not at all related to the 9-11 attacks in any literal sense. This whole thing is – it's part of a, an idea that the 9-11 attacks were not just – one isolated strike on U.S. interests, but they were the first real major shot, a Pearl Harbor-like attack in a World War II-style event 
that the United States was now locked in a generational struggle with radical Islamist extremism is a common term at the time. But this was the kind of thinking at the time that like this is the thing that is going to replace the Cold War as the defining concept or guiding lodestar of American foreign policy. And you had – this was bipartisan, right? It wasn't just Bush. You can even hear this rhetoric in then Joe Biden's speeches in 2000. I think there's one in 2004 where he talks in very much in these terms. Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama too in different ways, at least certainly back in 2008, that sort of time. So to me, it's, it's like – I know I've only covered two of the senses and there's another one that we can get to in a second. But to me, it seems like the, the ideological – language justified the military actions, but it presented a vision much broader than just invading Afghanistan or, or even invading Iraq, right? It presented a sort of guiding principle for what you're supposed to do if you're in charge of the U.S. foreign policy apparatus. No, I think you've really hit on something, Zach. And what I would add here was the U.S. posture in the world, invading Afghanistan, thinking through what would become a drone war architecture, that was about sort of what the U.S. was doing outside of its borders. But there was also a war on terrorism inside of its borders and in the margins of its borders, like Guantanamo Bay, where this tenuous kind of rule of law and and prisoners were held. There was the Patriot Act. There was this Islamophobia that really permeated society and we're still, frankly, grappling with today. I think Spencer Ackerman, the journalist, has really documented how the ethos of sending U.S. troops abroad to enforce counterterrorism policies kind of hit back home and had all this impact on how we as a society deal with soldiers that were in these really horrible conditions they were implementing and dealing with, but also facing IEDs, explosions, live war in, in a kind of unprecedented way. So What was in the 90s, this hope of a peace dividend, of the end of the Cold War, of a new era of the American economy, of a kind of unipolar moment where America was the most powerful nation in the world, it's totally crippled by these very frightening, uh, shocking attacks on Washington and on New York. And in response, I think many would argue, especially uh, people who follow civil liberties and journalists, that there was just an incredible overreach of the Bush administration that just totally affected every aspect of life. And as I say, I think we're still grappling with the intense bigotry against Muslims, South Asians, Arabs that really permeated every aspect of life in those days, weeks, and years after the September 11th attacks. This domestic concept is really interesting, right? There, Because it's... It is both separate from the military kind of operations, but united by the ideological construct. Because what the war on terror framework said is that we need to fight them abroad. We need to go to other countries and kill the terrorists before they can come here. But it also said that we are in a domestic emergency at home because after 9-11, there was a, a massive panic about future attacks happening. There also were, especially... In, in other democratic countries like Spain or, or Britain, major terrorist attacks in the following years. And this led to a sense that we need to do something at home as well, that there's – we're on war footing, like literally on this generational war footing that requires emergency mechanisms that wouldn't be justified in peacetime. So that's how you get the Patriot Act loosening restrictions on federal law enforcement. Today we take an essential step in defeating terrorism while protecting the constitutional rights of all Americans. With my signature 
This law will give intelligence and law enforcement officials important new tools to fight a present danger. I want to thank the Vice President and his staff for working hard to make sure this uh, law was passed. I want to thank the Director of the FBI and the Director of the CIA for waging uh, an incredibly important part on the two-front war, one overseas and a front here at home. It's how you get the NSA's warrantless surveillance program, right? It's how these things get dreamed up. It's how you get the NYPD's now widely reviled program of, of spying on the Muslim population in the New York area, right? There's this entire panoply of domestic civil liberties restrictions. It's how you get something like extraordinary rendition, where we'd take a terrorism suspect and send them to another country that had much, let's say, looser standards about what you do and can and cannot do to people when they're being interrogated. And then it's how we got to torture at Guantanamo Bay and the use of torture in Iraq to a degree, right? All of this was presented as we need to change our standards, the way we evaluate and understand what kind of constitutional and legal protections we can have for citizens and as a government and what limitations we can impose on the state. And when we're in the midst of a generational struggle, it's it's very much like Japanese internment or the second Red Scare in the 1950s, right? It's the sense of overwhelming exigency requiring the suspension of our protections at home. And so these these three ways of understanding the war on terrorism can't be separated from each other. The ideological construct gave way to this two-front application of foreign policy principles and the expansion of a domestic policy police state. Now, not all of these things are bad, right? I, one, thing I, one thing I want to say is like the way that we're talking about this I think is rightly that a lot of it was overreach and a lot of it was – poorly considered panicked reactions and a lot of it was like a, a mistaken ideological concept about just how serious the the threat of jihadism was, especially to Western countries. But there were also some things, some intelligence reforms, expanded funding for counterterrorism, like sort of normal standard policing, as you suggested you know, a few minutes ago, policing counterterrorism operations that were seem to be somewhat effective, right? Like there's a reason that there hasn't been a major terrorist attack planned from abroad in the United States in quite some time. And part of it, you know, is that al-Qaeda suffered serious losses as part of the invasion of Afghanistan. And then later on, when ISIS took over a huge swath of territory in Iraq and Syria, the Obama administration launched a very limited military intervention, basically providing aid and, and air support for local forces of various different stripes in, in Syria and Iraq. And that played a major role, the U.S. air support, in rolling back ISIS's caliphate and eventually, during the Trump administration, ultimately destroying it. It was, a very, I think, a very effective policy, one that had costs, obviously, but did succeed in reducing the threat from ISIS to the region and abroad. So all of this fits under this idea that we need to take extraordinary steps to fight terrorism. But it, it seems to me that the things that were most extraordinary were the things that are least justifiable, like the invasion of Iraq, like torture, and the things that more resembled a kind of policing option, even if it's sort of sort of hit the margins in certain cases, like in the ISIS intervention, were the things that tended to be more effective. I, I, I agree with a lot of that, Zach. And one thing that's really coming to mind is just how little accountability there was for some of the brazen overreach, some of the, the real stain on America's moral reputation. I mean, this torture stuff just cannot be understated on, on how vile it is that our government participated in such crimes. And the accountability has just really been lacking. I mean, there's a really rare moment where where the NBC journalist Mehdi Hassan 
was asking John Bolton, who was a very senior Bush diplomat, about the invasion of Iraq and how civilians were treated. And you start to realize that a lot of Bush officials just haven't even been asked about this. You have no regrets about the thousands of Iraqis who died in Iraq after the invasion. They never bother you, never keep you up at night, never weigh on your conscience. I didn't say that at all. And what I'm saying is that the the actual casualties in the overthrow of Saddam Hussein... I understand that, but you're still not answering the question. It's a very simple question, yes or no. Do they weigh on your conscience? It's not because you cannot attribute it causally to the U.S. invasion simply because so they it happened don't. later. You're, you're making assumptions uh, about things I'm that I I'm asking a very simple seen. question for you to answer, whether they weigh on your conscience. You don't seem to want to answer it. You're not letting You can say no and we'll move on. I mean, in contrast to President Trump, who kind of pursued all sorts of his own foreign policy misadventures, George W. Bush has come to be celebrated as a great unifier in this country. A lot of the people who worked on his team are being welcomed back into bipartisan quarters and and back into the establishment. But there hasn't really been a reckoning about what happened in Guantanamo Bay or what happened in Abu Ghraib in Iraq or the legal aspects of this that endure. And this was perhaps the fault of President Barack Obama, who I think in his attempt to smooth over a transition, being a president who didn't have a whole lot of foreign policy experience, who was misguidingly described as a Muslim by many on the far right, who went to Cairo in a very landmark speech to start a new beginning with the Muslim world in 2009, he also really didn't hold his predecessor to account. And one other point I want to make that I think is also connected to this is about who the U.S. partnered with across the Arab world and across the Muslim world to implement this war on terrorism. I mean, these are some unsavory partners. We're talking spy chiefs in Egypt and in Saudi Arabia that were willing to do stuff to prisoners, this extraordinary rendition policy that really did not believe in the civil liberties and rights and values that we as Americans, I think, hold dear. And it became this kind of tension where in the pages of of newspapers and policy journals, we were talking about a clash of civilizations and describing terrorists like al-Qaeda as contrasting with American values. But really, the U.S. government under Bush and policies continued under Obama, Trump, and, and some to this day really conflicted with those purported values of America. Yeah, this was the big debate among a lot of intellectuals at the time, which was not is terrorism a really a major threat? That was really questioned mostly only in radical quarters. It was not the mainstream debate, right? The mainstream debate was how dirty do we have to allow our hands to become in order to fight terrorism? And so you got really, really major thinkers coming up with justifications for when you could torture people uh, if you were suspecting them of terrorism. And then there was a lot of intellectual pushback, right? Like one of my favorite Articles about the scholarly articles is one uh, philosopher, David Lubon, arguing about torture culture and how once you open up the door even hypothetically to torturing people in certain circumstances, it has corrosive effects on a democratic political system because when you're saying something illegal could be authorized in an emergency, you're saying that somebody can define emergency to allow unlawful actions. And there's no way to stop this kind of thinking. I, I'm, I'm rendering the argument very broadly. It's a like a lot of philosophical arguments. It's very specific and precise in print. But reading that article had a real impact on me because it speaks to the broader effect that you're describing, which is that while there was clearly 
a, a national need to do something about the worst attack on American soil since Pearl Harbor, there also was at the same time such a, a groundswell, a sense of overinflation and overestimation about what needed to be done and what could be authorized justifiably that the U.S. government engaged in all sorts of behaviors that we just had no interest in any kind of accountability for, which sort of set, it, set the stage for a lot of elite impunity that would that would go on and emerge after it. Now, so far you've heard a, a lot of agreeing and we did promise you a bit of an argument. So we're going to take a break right now. And after that break, we're going to discuss points on which we may disagree about the war on terror paradigm or, or do we really disagree? Well, you'll have to tune in to find out. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Wise is the app that makes using different currencies easy. Need to send dollars to your cousin in Bali fast? Getting paid in another currency and don't want to lose out because of inflated exchange rates? Want travel money without having to slog through the currency exchange kiosk? Then WISE might just be your answer. From pesos to pounds, euros to yen, WISE takes the guesswork out of converting currencies. You can send and spend money worldwide at the real-time mid-market exchange rate with no markups and no hidden fees. In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. Welcome back to Worldly slash The Weeds. I'm Zach Beecham. I'm here with Jonathan Geyer, and we are discussing the war on terror as uh, an organizing principle for U.S. foreign policy. Now, we've spent the last 20 minutes or so running through what the war on terrorism actually was and what its effect on U.S. foreign policy in the 2000s and 2010s were. But now I, I sort of want to talk about today and whether the war on terrorism is still something that exists as a, as a paradigm. Now, I, I argued in a piece that it doesn't in one sense. And Jonathan, I think, argued that it does in a different sense. So let me present my case, Jonathan, then I'll kick it to you for you to present yours. So my argument in, in brief is that the core foundation of the war on terrorism, as I understand it, is this overarching narrative of an American democracy imperiled in an existential threat with this 
massive menace posed by global Islamism, jihadism, uh, and that the need to combat it should be the organizing principle of American foreign policy. And that, I think, has really dissipated. It was very helpful after I published my article. I came across an academic piece by C. William Waldorf, professor in the journal International Security. And what he does in the article is trace the rise and fall of terrorism-related discourse, looking at congressional speeches and newspaper editorials. And what he finds is that after 9-11 and up through really the middle of the Trump administration, terrorist attacks or terrorism-related incidents would generate uh, an overwhelming amount of attention from the press and fuel this war on terrorism paradigm. It's Obama tried to move away from it, but the rise of ISIS really ruined his ability to do so. Part of Waldorf's argument is that events shape the narrative, and so you're constrained uh, in terms of what you want the narrative to be or how you want to change it if you're an elite like a president by what actually happens in the world. So while Obama wanted to end the war on terrorism paradigm, it seemed like for some period of time he was boxed in first in Afghanistan by you know a general set of campaign promises that he made to appear hawkish and fit in with uh, the general war on terror consensus. And then later on with the rise of ISIS forcing him to have to do something or risk being called soft on terrorism in a way that was really damaging to Democrats in the past. The argument that he makes and finds in his research is that starting around 2018, especially as ISIS-related incidents declined, the narrative surrounding terrorism became less and less powerful. Uh, and became less part of the public mind, less something that members of Congress and people in the media paid attention to, reflecting in turn a decline among the population of a general sense of threat from terrorism. And as a result, that opened up opportunities for first Trump and then Biden to initiate a withdrawal from Afghanistan, which is the main subject of his piece. But more broadly, I think it showed that terrorism doesn't have this dominant hold on U.S. foreign policy anymore. It's been replaced primarily with concerns about Russia and China especially China, I think, and this turn towards what foreign policy people kind of annoyingly call great power competition. And that's the real organizing paradigm in the way we think about the future, that or possibly the struggle between democracy and autocracy, that that also is loosely and often annoyingly defined. The point is the, the ideological narrative has moved on from terrorism. And it's not clear to me, given the, the decimated state of terrorist groups compared to what they were at their peaks, that they ever will be able to turn it back, or at least will be able to in, in the immediate and foreseeable future. And so for that reason, I argued the war on terror era in U.S. foreign policy is over. But I think you you had a, a different way of understanding what the war on terrorism is. So why don't you lay out sort of what you were what you were arguing there? I guess what I'm worried about is the United States as a country hasn't moved on from the war on terrorism. The legal framework that we use to decimate al-Qaeda in Afghanistan is still operative. As far as I can tell, it's the basis for why we have troops in places like Yemen, Iraq, Syria, Somalia, and not really widely discussed. There's also just the fact that Guantanamo Bay is still open, kind of this great hangover and stain of the war on terrorism is, is still very much in existence. But I think what I was trying to focus on in my piece is that President Biden Yes, he killed this major al-Qaeda terrorist leader. This was an opportunity to not just symbolically end the war on terrorism, but actually end it. To say, you know, we're not going to use these legal authorizations anymore. You know, as I argue, you can't really separate Zawahiri's killing by drone from the killing of the Zamari family a year ago uh, in August 2021, where 10 Afghan civilians were killed in a Defense Department drone, you know, at the tail end, 
of the U.S. withdrawal, that there's this kind of arc of this war on terrorism where if you're going to kill a terrorist leader, you also end up tragically killing civilians. And, and whether this whole equation was really worth it, whether these civilian deaths create more terrorism, even the, the jails in, in countries like Egypt or Saudi Arabia where uh, prisoners of conscience are behind bars, whether these are creating new generations of Zawahiris who are see American empire as, as sort of the reason why they are entrenched in unfair legal systems. But I, th- I think to really step back to the questions we're both trying to raise, which is, yes, U.S. foreign policy right now, it's focused on Russia, it's focused on China. The kind of discourse has evolved from being kind of living in fear of the war on terror. However, so much of this war is still kind of coming home to roost. And my question, I guess, is, you know, are we in this moment that's sort of similar to when the Cold War ends in the 90s, but still many people are trapped in a Cold War logic? And I think, you know, so many of President Biden's advisors came up in this war on terrorism that maybe they're in a way trapped in this kind of closed box of thinking. It's interesting because, right, when we when we were talking about the war on terrorism a second ago, a defining element of – in fact, you, you defined it as like the starting point really – was the invasion of Afghanistan. And right now, the idea, like, yes, there are U.S. military presences in different places, but they're just much, much smaller. It's it's not comparable to either the, the full deployments in, in Afghanistan or Iraq, right? Just not, not even close. Um, and these smaller deployments, they, they raise a very difficult question, which is like there was this big debate, you alluded to it a second ago, about whether or not, you know, the better response to 9-11 would have been something akin to a policing paradigm. But what does that look like when it's people who are living in other countries that you just can't, you know, you can't arrest them in, in the same meaningful sense, right? What would it mean to engage in meaningful action designed to reduce the threat from terrorism without engaging in some kind of military action, without sending in special forces teams or some kind of targeted killings aimed at, at weakening these groups, right? In an, in an international sense, that's kind of what policing looks like, right? So isn't this just the paradigm that you were saying should have been brought about after 9-11? Well, here's the question, is to what extent these types of groups pose a threat to the U.S. national interests, pose a threat to Americans in the so-called homeland? And I think there's an argument being made by a lot of lawyers and and, and experts saying, you know, if we have U.S. troops in Somalia right now, it's actually creating a risk against U.S. troops in Somalia. And if they get attacked, it kind of drags the U.S. service people, puts them at risk, puts them at a risk of a, a cycle of escalation that we just don't want to be a part of. That's the problem with this global footprint where we have hundreds of U.S. bases and this sprawling empire of of how the U.S. acts in the world. Maybe it's not realistic from the U.S. establishment's perspective to have pursued a real international law approach, to have, you know, used the U.N., used other institutions to really hold terrorist groups accountable. But the fact that a rule of law paradigm was not used means we still have all these people in limbo in Guantanamo Bay, you know, something President Obama set out to do in day one in 2009 to close Guantanamo. And here we are over a decade later. And, and it feels like we're, we're nowhere closer. The kind of really tragic stories of people who got arrested accidentally in Afghanistan and endured, you know, just 
ridiculously terrible treatment but had nothing to do with terrorist groups. That's the kind of thing that happens when you have a a world of black sites that don't have the kind of accountability that a rule of law paradigm or a, a policing paradigm might present. I guess I'm trying to figure out, again, what that means, right? Because if that doesn't include any kind of military operation, I mean, what happens if al-Qaeda has a base somewhere, right? Well, like, like for, what, for what example— do you, What do you do? Do you, like, not, do you not hit that base? Do you let them just plan an attack on the U.S. and let them execute it or American interest somewhere? Do you, like, change the entire architecture of American foreign policy such that we don't have international bases— in, you know, different countries that we can't control. So we don't have a, an interest in Southeast Asia where there are some militant groups operating or any interest involved in the Middle East at all, right, or in Europe, right? What, what that would entail to pull back U.S. troops fully is like a whole revision of other foreign policy objectives, which are very separate from terrorism-related questions. Yeah. I mean, Zawahiri was never indicted for the 9-11 attacks, let's say. He was indicted for the USS Cole, the bombing of a a U.S. ship in the Persian Gulf. But this is what I'm talking about. This legal thing was just not a part of it. It became an ideological fight. It became something else that he became a mastermind. But, you know, where was the actual indictment for what he did? You know, if we are going to hold the U.S. to a kind of certain level of accountability, I mean, there were just several times where Zawahiri was killed in the 2000s. Of course, he wasn't and to say it's a counterterrorism victory, in, in my opinion, just sort of shows this broader failure of this, that obviously the fact that he was found in Afghanistan after the U.S. had invested, I think, close to $2 trillion, thousands of U.S. service people's lives, hundreds of thousands of Afghan civilians died. I mean, clearly there was something wrong with this project right. that, that led to us as a country being so entrenched into an Afghanistan that, as you rightly say, I think, is not a central part of the U.S. strategic interest in 2022. So it's um, – I, I wish I had all the answers. You know, we all got a little bit rusty about al-Qaeda because between the last 20 years, there was a focus on ISIS. Now we're thinking about Russia and China. I think the U.S. has moved on in a lot of ways. But at its core, we're still fighting this war on terrorism, you know, in the margins – for us, but for a lot of people in Arab states, and as you say, Southeast Asia, South Asia, Africa, they're more likely to encounter U.S. servicemen as part of these small troops or a base or the impacts of a drone strike than they are a U.S. diplomat. Yeah. The, the reason I'm pressing on this point, though, is that it does seem that a certain element of these military operations has in fact been effective, right? The, the 2014 ISIS intervention is the example I keep coming back to. It's like a real, a real, I think, inarguable success story. But there are others, the raid on bin Laden, which some of the methods used to gather that intelligence were pretty horrible. But if we grant the premise that not all of it has been counterproductive, and then you you raise this sort of alternative, okay, you indict Zawahiri, you indict bin Laden, great, how do you apprehend them, right? You need to do a bunch of this foreign intelligence gathering, you need to send troops, and that might not be possible, as was the case with Zawahiri, where, you know, it was interesting, they used a missile that was specifically designed not to explode and cause civilian casualties, it kind of crushed him, which is horrible, like, that we're talking about killing people, it's a very serious topic, but it also was designed to, to make sure that other people didn't die, all of which, to me, raises this, this sort of bigger question of, 
is this still a war on terrorism in the same sense, or is it actually ratcheted down to not fully policed because the U.S. does not literally control the world? We don't have sovereignty over these other countries in a way that would allow us to execute a warrant in the way that we could in, in let's say, Mar-a-Lago, Florida, right? It's it's not it's, – it's just fundamentally different. And so the footing that we're on right now, even though some of the legal architecture of the war on terrorism remains, it's just nothing like what it was during the peak of the ideological narrative, which to me makes me feel like we've – though a lot of these tools remain, and I think that's something we want to talk about in a little bit, like the sort of dangers that they could pose mm-hmm. down the line – the way that they're being used right now is fundamentally different and much more similar to what people in 2001 would have called something akin to a policing operation as compared to what the U.S. response actually was. Yeah, and and here's where I really want to listen to Afghan voices who are kind of dealing with the tragedy of the U.S. bureaucracy, the visa process, the complexity of being a refugee, seeking asylum, leaving a country that was taken over by the Taliban and left much worse off, in my opinion, 20 years after U.S. invasion. I spoke with someone like Arash Azizda, who's an Afghan-American filmmaker, runs a progressive advocacy organization. And he was basically saying, like, drones are not the answer here. The U.S. is stuck in this cycle of pursuing extrajudicial killing. And, And to your point about this being an extremely precise Uh, missile that doesn't have any civilian casualties. I think there is a plus to that, that there's no civilians, according to the White House, who were killed in this situation. But it also shows the great lengths that have been taken to continue this kind of extrajudicial war, you know, rather than figure out how to deal with complex countries where terrorism still thrives, Rather than figuring out what went wrong in Afghanistan or Iraq and how we reform policies writ large, we figured out how to make a better missile. Part of the point you're raising is that when you make war less visible, you routinize it and you make it possible to continue without very much domestic buy-in or concern. Very, very, very few Americans would know that the U.S. has military operations ongoing in Somalia. Right, That's just not a fact that's well known. And it's because they're so small and comparatively costless to the ordinary American, you just don't think about it. And you don't think about the people who die right, continually in Afghanistan, even though the drone program has been scaled down pretty dramatically under Biden, which is another thing I think is, is pretty striking and a point in favor of the war on terror paradigm ending has had policy consequences. But we only don't hear about it until we hear about it. Like in in 2018, when U.S. troops were killed in Niger, I think four U.S. soldiers were killed. You know, these are families. They're part of our communities. Even if we don't know who are the four or 500 or so U.S. service people who the president will ultimately send to Somalia, this is all kind of in the works. But these things are continuing. And Again, I think the core question here, and it goes to our bigger question of, you know, what is the organizing principle or paradigm of U.S. foreign policy, is that if counterterrorism isn't anymore, is it worth putting the lives of our fellow citizens at risk for something that, while maybe very important to Somalia, isn't all that important to U.S. foreign policy? I mean, that's a whole separate set of of moral questions, right, about what obligations the United States has to provide for the welfare of foreigners or not welfare in the case of military operations, right? It's it's a different set of moral concerns. The question though, right, when narrowly focused is like, 
what is necessary to prevent a resurgence of al-Qaeda or ISIS as a significant threat to the United States. And it seems that policymakers have determined that large-scale invasions are not that. Which is great. Good. I'm, I'm like, I'm really glad that we figured out figured that out after like many years of human disaster and strategic disaster as well. The question is like, what replaces that? And that seems unclear to me. Like, it's sort of unsettled what the the future, the ongoing future, since we're just exiting ideologically the war and terror paradigm. And that's what I want to discuss right after this break. Welcome back, Loyal Weeds listeners. I'm Zach Beecham, your host for the week here with Fox reporter Jonathan Geyer. We've been talking about the war on terrorism, what it was, whether or not it's over and in what senses it's over and in what senses it isn't. And now I, I want to talk a little bit about the future of what U.S. counterterrorism policy might look like. As I hinted at the end of the last section, we're only just entering the period in which terrorism is no longer a dominant concern of American foreign policy. Like it just started probably in the latter half of the Trump administration and the Biden administration. So it's still very, very, very early. And a lot of the, the policy tools that were created back in 2001, like for instance, the authorization for the use of military force that allows America to do as far as US lawyers have determined functionally anything anywhere, as long as it's determined to be in the name of fighting terrorism, that's all. That's still in place, right? So in theory, the war on terrorism could ramp up without a need for significant, let's say, congressional authorization. Jonathan, do you think that what's going to happen in the coming years is just like a continuation of the status quo forever where we have all of these different military operations humming at a low level designed to, to keep terrorist organizations weak or not, as the case may be, if they're not working? I think you really identified one of the core concerns, which is this authorization of the use of military force. It sounds so technical, the AUMF, but you know this 2001 authorization that says you can go after al-Qaeda and then was later interpreted to say you can also go after groups affiliated with al-Qaeda is now the basis for this U.S. footprint. And it's, it's the basis for interventions much smaller than the Afghanistan one in, in, you know, about 85 countries across the world. And a small group of, of uh, members of Congress and largely progressives have been trying to reform this. And it could have been a really great moment, I think, for President Biden to say, hey, we've literally used this authorization to its very clear end in killing Zawahiri, you know, the last known planner, as it were, of the September 11th attacks. So that's why I was disappointed in, in what seemed like a throwback to George Bush when President Biden spoke after this assassination and kind of delivered an address to the nation. The United States did not seek this war against terror. It came to us. And we answered with the same principles and resolve that have shaped us for generation upon generation. Obviously, the Ukraine war and the prospect of a conflict hot or cold with Russia is on everybody's mind. And then the kind of bigger picture over the horizon of China being this, what many in the military circles are calling a pacing threat, a rising power, a potential great power. These are going to be the organizing principles of U.S. foreign policy going forward. What really concerns me is that the U.S. is really good in following into a pattern of, of a new bad guy or a boogeyman. And when the Cold War paradigm didn't make sense anymore, terrorists became the bad guy. Now that terrorists aren't that much of a threat to our national interests, 
who's the boogeyman? I guess it's Russia or it's soon going to be China in a lot of the discourse. And the question is how to turn this into an actual opportunity or a conversation and not just a kind of otherization of what we as Americans are trying to accomplish on the world stage. It's like there's this whole world that has been built to fight terrorism inside the U.S. government and specifically jihadist terrorism. And the question is, what is that world going to do, right? Because it doesn't fit into these other paradigms that you're describing, right? It's just And it's, it's every level. I mean, in terms of our sanctions, the way we think about them, I reported last week about how the whole way we went after terrorist financing in the 2000s, that's not how we're going to go against Russian sanctions busters. It's just not going to be the same set of questions. And there are big lessons to learn from Afghanistan. We're a year out from what I think was a really brave political decision by President Biden to leave the country and a really messy execution. And there hasn't really been accountability. We're still waiting for that accountability from each individual agency that probably each bears some responsibility for what went wrong, for the president himself who said the buck stops with me, but then there hasn't really been a reckoning. And we need that reckoning, I think, as a country because otherwise it's it's all too easy to stumble into another intervention that lasts for 20 years or so. Yeah, I, I guess I'm I'm somewhat less concerned about the prospect of like another occupation of a country in the name of nation building because it seems like at the elite level, people in both parties have decided that they don't really want to do that anymore. There are other kinds of hawkishness that still exist, right? But they're primarily increasingly state-to-state hawkishness and support for ongoing militarized counterterrorism campaigns and that sort of thing going on. But I think the primary access of – well, this is the first time we've used the word access in this in this podcast. That's rare for something that was doing a 9-11 retrospective. Not one axis of evil mention. Well, well, here it is. It's a famous 2002 speech that Bush gave. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil arming to threaten the peace of the world. The 2000s were wild. It was just a really – Incredible era of ideological overstretch. Sorry for the tangent, listeners. Like, well, let's let's explore that tangent because yeah. I think the thing is that the great speechwriter for that moment, David Frum, has been totally welcomed back into the establishment. And he kind of created this war of the worlds that we still live with in terms of an axis of evil. And he's now become a kind of crusader against Trumpism and has become a so-called good Republican or a voice accepted by a bipartisan audience, it's just incredible how short folks' memories are in terms of the creation of an access of evil. And I think if you really want to go bold and say, if we can make a deal with the Taliban, couldn't we have a diplomatic relationship with Iran that goes beyond a nuclear deal? Or are we still trapped in the idea that a country like Iran is an access of evil? Of course, this week, we're learning about a purported assassination attempt on John Bolton, someone who came up earlier, who was a, a Bush right. and then a Trump official. And we're just caught up in a cycle of violence and a cycle of creating axes of evil. And some of that is the Bush administration, I think, that that really bears responsibility. Oh, those are both two really interesting cases, and I'm torn on which one I want to talk about. I guess I'll take them in turn, right? Like, first... You have to give David Frum a certain amount of credit, even though I, I vehemently disagree with his 2000-era writing. You know, his book, An End to Evil, is particularly difficult to stomach in retrospect. He went out on a limb and opposed the Republican Party's drift towards extremism back in the Obama era. 
I don't know what it is about being a neoconservative of that particular era, but a lot of the people who are real war on terror hawks like Max Boot or Jennifer Rubin have turned into critics of Trumpism and the, the sort of hard right drift of the Republican Party. And I it just it's, – it's very strange because there are people who used to be associated with, with the cause of incredibly aggressive American nationalism who have now functionally in a lot of ways – become welcomed into the Democratic coalition, even if they don't really dictate policy. And some of them have just become party-line Democrats, right, abandoning really the, the conservatism that used to define them. So there's – in addition to these sort of foreign policy, legal, geostrategic concerns we've been talking about, there's a reconfiguration of domestic American politics where the, the constituency in the elite that was really – hard line, we're going to fight terrorism forever, this is the defining challenge of our time, has shifted away from that paradigm as well as they've, as they've reacted to domestic policy events. On the second point, Iran is like obviously lumping it in with Iraq, which it had just not so long ago fought a massively devastating war with. That was, was a ridiculous thing, especially with North Korea thrown in there. It's just like, what, are you, what, are you, what were you guys thinking? It's also the case that the Iranian government does a lot of really horrible things. And they don't need like the U.S. being mad at them to do it. It's a significant part of it, of its regional foreign policy. So not everything that that is bad or, or was created by the war on terrorism paradigm is just like the pure result of the way the United States approaches foreign policy. Iran has its own strategic and ideological reasons for why it does the things that it does in the Middle East. And there are plenty of good reasons to be concerned about its, for instance, its support for terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah. But the that, that brings me to a third question of Iran's sort of rival country or the country that is most concerned about Iran, which is arguably Saudi Arabia. But in this case, I was thinking about Israel um, because I was just there. And, and one thing that's notable about being in Israel and talking to Israelis about politics and especially um, foreign policy is the way in which fears about security swamp everything. They are the bedrock of the way in which – people in Israel think about the world. And, you know, it, you can understand why that's the case, right, given they're in a much more precarious strategic position than the United States is. But it has this, this shaping, almost a warping effect on the way in which the Israeli state and citizenry sees their own security and what they're willing to countenance policy-wise. And you, you actually, in your piece, you use Israel as a, a cautionary tale for the U.S. in terms of, of foreign policy going forward. Right. Well, there's just been um – an assault on Gaza in which Israel was preemptively attacking a terrorist group, Islamic Jihad, and ended up killing a whole lot of civilians in the process. And this is part of a, a longer strategy, or I would say a tactic, it's not a great strategy, called mowing the grass, which, um, you know, that you can kind of get rid of terrorist groups every so often, but that grass kind of grows back. And I think that's one of the fears, I think, of what President Biden is pursuing in assassinating terrorist groups' leaders every so often in what's called an over-the-horizon policy where presumably our U.S. drones and, and military personnel in places across the Middle East and bases are going to go in and do very targeted killings, which is you're going to knock out the leaders, but that grass is going to grow back. And mowing the grass kind of by definition means that it's going to grow back. To your point on this too, I just want to say it's it's kind of fascinating that President Biden did just go to Israel, and even his outreach to that government wasn't able to preempt or avoid another 
tit for tat in Gaza. This was thankfully only three days, but three days is too much of violence. It really shows to me the paltry returns on President Biden's trip where I feel like he's still searching for his Middle East paradigm. He's still kind of caught in some of the war on terrorism paradigm. He still sees Israel a little bit the way he saw the country as a young senator, as I've argued, and doesn't necessarily see Israel in the 21st century, sees it still as a David in a, in a sea of Goliaths rather than as a country with a nuclear weapon and the, possibly the strongest army in the Middle East. More than one, though. They, they, they won't say how many. They won't even say if they have so one. It's, it's pretty funny. It's a very confusing situation where it feels like Biden is often a cold warrior. He's kind of trapped in the past. And you kind of want his administration and, and the younger generation of advisors around him to say, hey, we've been through this cycle of violence between Israel and Gaza before. We don't want to recreate this. We've done the counterterrorism game where we empower folks like Saudi Arabia or Egypt and they throw tons of people in prisons and, and disregard rights quite brazenly. We've done the small counterterrorism presence in countries throughout Africa and the Middle East and it doesn't always work out so well. And maybe we need some new answers. I almost think that there's like this well, no, I don't almost think, right? I mean, this is literally true, right? That there's a limited reservoir of presidential attention and effort. And when you spend that attention on certain policy issues, it necessarily detracts from other ones, right? And a high-level strategic rethink is just a complicated thing to do in a government as massive as the U.S. government with this many responsibilities. And it seems like, especially after the Afghanistan withdrawal a lot of the Biden administration's efforts have been not to do that much when it comes to the Middle East. Like on, on a whole host of issues, right, they're trying to restore previous status quos, like get back into the Iran nuclear agreement. They're not trying to do transformative things like broker an Israeli-Palestinian peace accord. They have, I think, rightly recognized that that's not happening in the immediate future or at least in the next three years. But they they are sort of treading water in the way that you describe on Middle East policy and, and inhabiting the paradigm that was so defined by the war on terrorism and its legal authorizations and its policies in, in part because they've been so focused on Ukraine and China. And I, I don't think that's wrong exactly, but I also think it leads to a suboptimal approach to Middle East policy where you're just sort of continuing what you're doing without – a fundamental, as, as you suggest, a fundamental rethink of whether what you're doing makes sense anymore. One way to think about it, and I often like to think about it, is personnel as policy. So the top White House coordinator for the Middle East is a guy named Brett McGurk, who got his career started in the early 2000s as, as a lead lawyer in Iraq during the early days of the occupation. He served President Obama's administration as a counter-ISIS envoy. He served in the Trump administration. Now he's Biden's key advisor. So this is a guy who's served in that whole arc of the war on terrorism. And in interviews last year, McGurk described President Biden's approach to the Middle East as back to basics. And I think this goes to exactly what you're saying, Zach, but what are the basics? And if the basics haven't been working, is that really what we want to go back to? The thing is, there's not even a clear explanation of what working is. What would it mean for a U.S. foreign policy to deliver good outcomes in the Middle East? So much of it 
has been managing crises, right? That That's a lot of the war on terrorism was just reacting to one of the biggest crises in U.S. foreign policy history, the 9-11 attacks, and figuring out how to make sure something like that didn't happen again, which is almost like returning to a previous era where people weren't worried about terrorism. And in that sense, right, that very narrow sense, you can say the war on terror was a success because – it is no longer the case that terrorism is this overwhelming threat to the United States. The terrorist groups still exist. Their focus is primarily regional. They could, in theory, maybe at one point, mount another attack on the U.S., but right now it seems that they have neither the interests nor the capability to do so. Again, that could that could change over the course of time. But OK, so now we've, we've sort of restored a previous era where transnational jihadism is not this, this looming threat. OK, now what? Right. What what does success look like? What does it mean for the United States to engage with problems in the Arab and Muslim world? And it's just not obvious to me what the answer to that question is. There's two points of that that I would unpack. One is, what does it mean for Americans, keeping Americans safe, if that is the essence of U.S. foreign policy? And what does it mean for people living in the region, whatever region we're talking about? Right. And I think President Biden has had kind of two bumper stickers on foreign policy. One is centering human rights, which I don't think he's actually done. But the fact that he even wanted to do it showed that he cared about Egyptians and Saudis and others who don't have the kind of human rights that we enjoy in the United States. The other is, you know, a foreign policy for the middle class. And that's gas prices. And that's, you know, keeping Americans safe and happy which is also hard to do. And I think these two things kind of necessarily come into conflict. I don't know if you can have a foreign policy that centers human rights and also is going to be the best for gas prices. But this goes to something else that I think is maybe the big fault line emerging among Washington foreign policy communities, which is this buzzword of restraint. And to the extent to which U.S. power basing troops abroad, military might, ought to be restrained, and that might have better outcomes, whether it's better to use diplomacy rather than troops on the ground. And it may mean that in some circumstances, you're not going to have the same kind of leverage, but you're also not going to put American lives at risk. This is now, now that we've moved past the various different terrorism debates, the big debate is the restrainer versus forward deployment. There's not really a term for the opposing camp because it's, it's primacy most of the is, is what I've been hearing. Yeah, I think that's that that's like a that's the restrainer term for their opponents because it's like it sounds a little negatively I mean, I've loaded. Heard, to I've me. heard um, primacists. Biden yeah. officials talk about American primacy oh, in their articles for that. places like foreign affairs. So I think it's kind of like IR yeah, it, it, it is, but it has this – to me, I've always – I've seen it used in an almost pejorative sense. It's really interesting that they're they're like – they're retaking primacy. Um, but look, it's uh, – it, this is this is the kind of debate that occupies the United States now. It's like do we pursue or continue to pursue a global military dominance and ensuring that there's no pure competitor, right, even as China becomes increasingly close to something that you might call a pure competitor, even if I don't think it is yet. Or do you attempt to scale down America's global ambitions and try to just like adapt to a multipolar world, meaning we are just not even first among equals, but just existing in a world where there are other countries that can rival us militarily, right? That that debate was basically not happening in the war on terrorism era. It was in the 90s. 
the question of terrorism displaced that argument because you just everyone agreed all of a sudden who was in the mainstream that you needed to have forward deployments in order to fight terrorism. And so this idea of pulling back American bases was just it was just not going to happen. But in a world where we're pivoting towards discussions about how best to orient ourselves towards China, I mean there's I mean there's a there's a range of different camps inside of these various different broadly defined camps, right? There's some people who want to aggressively confront China over Taiwan. There's some people who want to try to deter China from taking steps against Taiwan in various different ways. There are some restrainers who just advocate a more pulled back or scaled down U.S. deployment to less essential regions like the Middle East and a refocus on East Asia and Europe. And there's some restrainers who are like, why are we involved in these conflicts at all? And maybe we should just end our foreign basing altogether, right? It's this whole array of different views and debates that are happening because we are in, in ideological terms, the post-war on terrorism era. Exactly. And I think to put a finer point on it, we have created this whole world of U.S. bases, I think largely designed for the war on terrorism. But if you look at Biden's Africa strategy, which was just released, it's all about countering Russia and China. If you look at the subtext of Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia and, and meeting with Arab leaders last month, also entirely focused on countering Russia and China. And even when Biden went to Asia, it really wasn't just about Asia writ large. This was about countering China. So the question becomes, are we mismatched in our global footprint, in the legal architecture, in the not just the rhetoric, but, you know, how the U.S. military and national security frameworks work to address this. And, you know, these are the debates we really need to have right now, because if, as you argue in your piece, Zach, that symbolically we've ended the war on terrorism, we now need to not just symbolically, but, you know, hash out and argue and figure out how we're going to think about Russia and China so we don't fall into these old traps of, you know, the enemy afar and, you know, using military might. We're going to have to actually have some, you know, big think debates and strategy to come up with some new ideas because I just, my sense is the old ideas aren't working. That's where we're going to leave you today. Thank you so much to Jonathan Geyer for joining the panel. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Amber Hall is the deputy editorial director for Talk Podcasts. And I'm your host for today, Zach Beecham. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network and we will be coming back to you very soon.